Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Anne Komaromi about her new book, Soviet Semisad, Imagining a New Society. Um, this work was published by the Northern Illinois University Press, which is an imprint of Cornell University Press in 2022. Um, now, Anne is... Uh, works across Center for the Comparative Literature and Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures um, at the University of Toronto. She's also the acting director of the Center for Comparative Literature um, and has recently been promoted to a position of full professor. So I can at the same time congratulate her on her new book and her new uh, position. Um, I'm very excited to talk about um, the um, book Soviet Samistat, um, and to welcome Anne to our show. And welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Eva. I'm so happy to be here to talk with you today. Uh, now, I had a bit of a look at your research interests, and they kind of span a pretty broad um, field, I guess. Um, you're interested in alternative publishing, underground networks, and nonconformist literature and art, um, especially um, after uh, Stalin um, and throughout the Soviet Soviet period, um, and in your book Soviet Samizdat, you you analyze Samizdat, right, which you describe as a grassroots system of self-publishing that developed in the USSR after the death of Joseph Stalin and continued all the way to throughout per- Perestroika. So tell us how did you become interested in Samizdat? What drew your you know, focus on this field? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking about that. It's a it's a chance to go back uh, in time for me and and think about my graduate studies and how um, you know what has sort of developed into that range of interests you, you were talking about came to be. Um, my training was in Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and I had wonderful teachers of literature there. One of them was Yuri Shiglov who had emigrated from the Soviet Union um, and in classes and also in one-on-one sessions, um, he gave me a lot of insight into Soviet culture in various periods. He loved humorous texts and he was working at that time on commentary to the novels of Ilf and Petrov, um, 12 Chairs and The Golden Calf, and he was tracing the, the allusions in and influences on those satirical novels to kind of show um, what would have been sort of well known to readers of the time, but also to kind of, you know, place these um, funny works uh, in the realm of, of um, you know, really, really developed culture drawing on a lot of kind of paradigms and and mythological thinking in, in the Soviet Union. So he, he really showed the richness of how they were put together and worked. And I think, um, you know, a couple of things uh, were important for me in, in that influence, and, and he became my supervisor for my thesis work. 
uh, the interest in humor and the fascination with this rich and complex culture uh, within which such such interesting books you know, could could come to be. And I wanted to investigate works that had not been as thoroughly studied. So I turned my attention to the later post-Stalin period. <clears throat> and um, as is reflected in my, my first book, it was novels by Vasily Aksyonov, Andrei Bitov, and Venedik Yerofeyev that I thought were interesting because they had similar kind of, you know, dense weaves of il- allusions to high and po- popular culture. They were, they were funny. They were also serious, um, sad, and angry. And I think it was the complexity of, of that tone and also that construction of them as literary works that, um, you know, happened in relation to events in the society outside of them. Um, so it just seemed like a whole world to explore. Uh, and it ultimately took me many years um, just to just to figure out and, and have something to say about, about those novels. Um, and the fact that those novels were circulated in Sami's Dot was something that, um, that interested me very much, uh, in part because Sami's Dot was distinct for the post-Stalin time, and I, I wondered what it meant to authors and to readers to, to get works that way. Um, so I started asking people questions, and when I went to Moscow to do research, I got in touch with people at the Memorial Society um, and the Sakharov Center, and they were focused more on human rights and history, and that was not exactly my topic at the time, but they had big archives of Samis.txt, and people there knew about the history of that system, so it was was very, very valuable and interesting, and I could, could start to explore. And that was really kind of the entrance to a rabbit hole that sort of <laughs> took me took me very far um, and over many years. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the the variety, richness of sources that you include in, in your book, um, but maybe we can start first with the, the definition. How, how do you define Samis that for the purpose of your study and can you tell us a bit about the approaches that you take in, in engaging with this term and some of the um, kind of theoretical perspectives that you introduced here? Sure. Um, so Sami's dot is most basically self-publishing, Sam, self, and uh, is dot, a root for publishing. And it's a, it's a neologism. People say it was coined by um, Nikolai Glaskov, who was writing his own uncensored poetry uh, in the beginning in the 40s. Um, and Glaskov was parodying the names of official Soviet publishing houses. So Gossi's Dot, State Publishing House, Vayeni's Dot, Military Publishing House. Um, and, and the term began to be used in certain circles in Moscow around the end of the 1950s. It subsequently became uh, the word used to designate the texts um, that were uncensored and the system uh, of unofficial publishing within which they they circulated. Um, publishing in that sense probably has to kind of be in quotation marks because it was not print publication and didn't have a lot of the features we associate with print publication. So it wasn't 
necessarily fixed for a long time. It wasn't necessarily disseminated very widely. Um, and, and copies could vary um, among themselves because people would pick them up, they'd see errors and correct them, or they would shorten them when they copied them again to, to pass them on. So, um, so it's not publishing in the way we usually see it. Um, and that, that kind of approach of thinking about it as a textual culture, of thinking of it in relation to how people had talked about Gutenberg print um, and, and sort of the social impacts of something like the Gutenberg revolution, um, that gave me a way to think about uh, this, what, what I came to call after Leo Rubinstein, uh, extra Gutenberg publishing um, was, was a kind of um, framework for thinking about texts within it, but also for the social effects that might happen. Uh, because people are producing and circulating texts that way. Um, so um, that's then also been, for me, something that I take as a kind of, of basis, this uh, use of the term first in the Soviet Union, and the practice certainly spread outside of it, and, and we can see unofficial circulation of manuscripts for the post-Stalin period, but um, taking it in the post-Stalin period in the Soviet Union provided something that was relatively bounded and I could sort of grasp in some way. And I thought it might be useful then for people to think about it in other comparative ways or in broader senses uh, once we had this, this kind of, um, you know, bounded area established a little bit more thoroughly with with this kind of approach. Mm. And I, I really like your um, introduction of the Gutenberg theme and the, the uh, extra Gutenberg uh, framework, Riley, to, to think about um, this form of, of production. Um, now, your book opens with the consideration of semi-state and history writing. Um, and I'm interested about this process of re-examination of Soviet history after Nikita Khrushchev's secret speech at the 20th Party Congress in 1956, this is a, a, a huge moment, right? A watershed moment in many, many respects. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the role of Samizdat in that process of destalinization and, and, and the toll? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, I think that's, you know, certainly highlighted by looking at it in the Soviet Union in this period, because it was very much responding to and participating in the changes um, after Stalin died. Um, and Khrushchev's, it's probably worth remembering that Khrushchev's secret speech, the text of that speech, was it was delivered um, orally in a closed session. And then the text was circulated to party organizations. And it was, you know, meant to be kept just for their eyes only. And of course, it wasn't. Um, because, you know, what he was talking about, um, the sort of reassessment of Stalin's mistakes of the purges, opening up these topics um, was so important. Um, and people wanted to, to share this and talk about it. So of course, it leaked. Um, and it Got, got circulated more widely. That was before the term samizdat was really being used. But it was, I think it's interesting as a kind of um, official prototype 
of what would become this unofficial network of Samizdat. And, you know, the process of de-Stalinization was, um, was not sort of smooth. It wasn't, the, the signals were kind of contradictory. So they needed to de-Stalinize as the party officials were telling people. But, um, you know, what you could say and uh, how much could be sort of revealed <clears throat> remained contentious. And the party was really trying to control that process. And people felt the need to share their experience and talk about what they had heard or known um, and wrestle with the issues that, that arose in the wake of Stalin's regime um, more widely. And at the same time, there was this cultural liberalization of the thaw happening. So some repressed names were coming back. Some things were being published that couldn't be published before. And people were were also, uh, you know, I think wanting to push the boundaries of that process further uh, and, you know, read and write things that weren't necessarily um, approved by, by the authorities um, or controlled entirely by them. So, so Samizdat was a way of extending that process of de-Stalinization and the thaw um, and making it po possible to to say and hear and discuss things and do things that um, that fell, you know, on on either side of what the party wanted to allow to happen. Yeah, um, I've obviously a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the secret speeches as as an event, right, um, in in Soviet history. But I never thought about it as a text. And I do invite our listeners to uh, when they do engage with your book to to uh, Focus on that part there. You explain Soviet that secret speech is, you know, a, a, an oral um, delivery, but also as a text, but also the text that changes within the Soviet Union, then outside the Soviet Union. So many life of that text or that speech rather is uh, quite an interesting kind of a part of that that story that I never um, thought about, and that you reveal so beautifully in, in your in your work. Um, there are many different case studies in in this. Uh, portion where, where you engage with uh, history writing or samizdat within this context. You walk outside Moscow and outside um, Leningrad uh, to bring to four um, different communities that engage or use samizdat at, at that point to re-examine their, their histories and their position. Um, I was wondering if you can talk about two case studies in particular. One is on uh, Crimean Tatar community and also the Baptist community in the Soviet Union, how they use Samizdat at this point in time. Yeah, thanks. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, both of those are really interesting um, cases because they do challenge what, what has been a very kind of Moscow-centric um, view focused on the intelligentsia. And um, in fact, uh, you know, people at the time, certainly rights activists, were really interested in what other people um, not living in Moscow and maybe not from their social circles were were experiencing, and the Crimean Tatars um, are a a particularly uh, fascinating case. So they had been deported from the Crimea uh, to Central Asia by Stalin during World War II um, and labeled an enemy people at that time. And they incurred horrible losses during the deportation and afterwards in the, the harsh living conditions. Um, 
And the restriction on their movements was lifted uh, in 1956, but they weren't allowed to return to the Crimea. So um, certainly they wanted to do that and and felt they should have a a right to do so. Um, Rights activists in Moscow became aware of their efforts after some time and and helped to publicize them, which is is part of why um, these records are a little bit better preserved and that that history was discussed and and known and um, but it, it had actually been very early in 1965 that Crimean Tatar activists started putting together information in a Samizdat periodical called information um, that was a way to inform members of their community and also the wider society about their history about their claims to the right to return to Crimea and about ongoing persecutions uh, of uh, Crimean Tatars. Um, historian Gulnara Bikirova writes that information, the, the publication, which was a, a bulletin series, helped foster a national consciousness among people. And it made others aware of the tremendous injustice that had been perpetrated under Stalin and which was unfortunately still ongoing. Um, Unregistered Baptists were another community not confined to the big cities and they used Samizdat in a few different ways. So um, unlike other groups, uh, in part because they were in the provinces and could conceal them, they had uh, big underground presses and could produce uh, primarily sacred literature, the Bible um, and prayer books, um, but also uh, periodical publications to inform people in the community and keep them connected um, since they were spread out, uh, dispersed among uh, a a pretty wide uh, area of of the Soviet Union. circulating these Samizdat um, bulletins and journals, which had um, sort of pastoral information and uh, sermons and messages uh, to the faithful, but also had information about persecution of Baptists, um, arrests and um, suppression of their rights. Children were taken away uh, because they were as the state said, being subject to religious propaganda, this was the right to educate children in the faith that uh, people in the community reasonably thought they should have. Um, so the the stories of uh, persecution became um, a, a way of showing the steadfastness of the faithful um, and informing people about uh, about illegal and unjust actions by the state against them. And it's, it's worth saying in this case that the Baptists had a very long history um, of uh, rights awareness and working um, in many cases with the Russian imperial government and later the Soviet government um, to try to establish uh, you know, the basis for their their communities to to continue living the way they wanted to live but um, obviously that didn't go particularly smoothly and uh, they they needed to uh, to tell people about what was going on 
Um, and your study moves from exploration of historical self to the question of voice. Um, you know um, that that famous anecdote with Anna Akhmatova, who gave the voice to uh, all those people who were waiting in long lines to see their loved ones who were imprisoned in, in, and sitting in, in um, Soviet uh, uh, various prisons and, and camps. Um, and poetry kind of comes into focus here, this part of your study. Um, I want to focus for very selfish reasons on, on one case study in particular, where you look at Russian futurism, um, which is the avant-garde movement um, that originally um, came about in the late 1910s and, and, and uh, 1920s. This was a merger not just of, of poetry, but of visual arts, uh, performing arts, and so on. Um, Russian futurists reappear in Samizdat culture in this late Soviet period. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how this comes about? Sure, I'd, I'd be glad to. And and of course, um, one of the best known Russian futurists, Vladimir Mayakovsky, was hugely important in uh, in this return to futurism uh, that happened. Uh, still, kind of a connection that continued under Stalin, but certainly in the in the post-Stalin era. Um, and Mayakovsky was important in part because he occupied such a prominent place in the canon of Soviet literature. So um, reading him and studying him was still possible, even if you know not sort of um, widely done in the way someone like Andrei Sinyavsky was able to do it. But Sinyavsky was someone who had uh, seminars at the university where they studied not just uh, Mayakovsky, but people Mayakovsky knew. And this proved to be a network of, you know, really interesting uh, poets and artists, and it was international. So it was a kind of memory of, of the, you know, this, this rich international and very experimental culture with, with all of this creative ferment. Um, and Mayakovsky was kind of like a, like a gateway drug into that, um, that, that liberated view of things. Um, and, and, and other people found him to be as, as well. So when the monument to Mayakovsky was opened in central Moscow in 1958, people flocked to Mayakovsky Square, which was known as the Mayakovka, to read his poems they read other poems, uh, including their own. And the socializing and sharing of work there, not confined to, to just what was published, although they they knew that they were being, you know, that there were um, plainclothes policemen among them and, and people weren't trying to do things that were that were too provocative, but but it was it was a space of, of a, quite a bit of freedom. Um, and people like Yuri Galanskov got up to read what were really very daring verses at the time in his human manifesto, calling on people to to tear apart lies and and remake their society in this kind of revolutionary way. Um, and that scene gave rise to some early handmade collections and periodicals that people were passing around. Um, and it went on for a while. Authorities cracked down on the scene in the early 1960s, but not before people had made really some interesting uh, connections and and tasted the kind of freedom uh, that was 
both both poetic and also social. Um, and this was the basis for uh, a number of later unofficial cultural initiatives and rights activist uh, connections. Um, there are people, a number of people who trace the origins of that activity to the Mayakovka. So more broadly speaking, Russian futurism became this kind of engine of late Soviet unofficial culture, and it did so in different ways. Um, there were people who were enthusiasts of Mayakovsky and that kind of experimental revolutionary poetry. There were others who thought um, Mayakovsky and his associates were too compromised by a revolutionary ethos and ties to a state that had become um, as oppressive as it did. So they sort of pushed off from the futurist wing and embraced often other types of high modernism. Um, and Osip Mandelstam was a very big figure for, for many of those people. Um, and there were, there were others who admired the bold experimentation and poetry and across media that the, the futurists were known for, but also felt they had to distinguish themselves from um, this very famous and internationally sort of canonized historical avant-garde represented by futurism, but also by suprematism and Malevich. And the conceptualists were among those. So you see them referring back to that avant-garde heritage, but to distinguish themselves and what they're doing um, from it. Um, and futurism continued to be generative in particular cases. It's worth noting the um, Transforists, the Transforiste, a group that developed around Rui Nikonova and Sergei Sige. Uh, they were based in the provincial city of Yesk with connections to Leningrad. And um, they were convinced that there was a lot to be done to recover uh, a wide sort of futurist legacy and to reimagine the creative potentials of it for their time. So it's relatively idiosyncratic, but absolutely um, sort of outstanding work uh, in, in dot publications they created, like the journals Nomer and Transpanance, um, which are have to be the most visually striking and formally exuberant um, texts we found in the archive. Uh, just on that, where can one find these texts? In, in the um, was that something that you discovered in uh, memorial archives, or uh, I presume they're not easily yeah located. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, finding material like that was was just was so stunning, and it's not that it was um, hidden, but as you said. Uh, these things didn't exist in many copies, and they were they were only known to a few specialists. So, um, Memorial had a lot of the um, documents associated with rights activism, um, particularly Moscow rights activists. But uh, Bremen, Germany, where the Institute for the Study of Eastern Europe is located, had its own archive that included a lot of the literary and um, artistic materials that couldn't be found elsewhere and also couldn't be found in the Open Society Archive where Radio Liberty um, 
SAMIS.DOT documents uh, were were and are kept. Um, so um, for me, as someone sort of coming from uh, you know uh, training in in literature and thinking about literature and art, um, I really wanted to do something to help make uh, materials like that accessible. And over many years, working together with the Institute for the Study of Eastern Europe, we were able to digitize um, those editions by the Transforest and uh, make digital copies available through the University of Toronto Libraries. Okay. That, that's, that's fantastic. And uh, one of the publications that you also mentioned is Art of the Commune, which is takes its name after the, the really original Futurist publication. And... Um, I remember accessing that uh, publication, even though it's well known among scholars. But uh, that's that's no small feat. <laughs> so it's it's fantastic that um, y- you know these these um, futurist inspired publications uh, from the late Soviet period are now um, made available. Um, and yeah, it's a fascinating story. I mean, as you know, the futurist movement is so complex and has such a complex relationship with the Soviet regime um, originally that it's 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 um, quite an interesting story of how that's now taken at this point in time um, and which aspects of, of it are, are um, activated, I guess, in the in the Samisat culture. Um, f- from poetry, we moved to visual arts, which, uh, again, for me, was a bit of a surprise to see visual arts or rather conceptual art um, within the Samisat context, but it, it sort of makes perfect sense <laughs> in many regards. And I would like uh, for you to explain a little bit about how you see this relationship between Samistat and conceptual art uh, that emerged in the Soviet Union in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and, and maybe tell us a little bit about the artwork you chose for your book cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. I'd love to, to talk about that. Um, so conceptualist artists were, um, you know, kind of working in alternative ways and alternative spaces for their art. And um, many of them, um, doing nonconformist art, um, not within the regular art institutions and exhibition spaces controlled by officials, um, even though they, uh, in in many cases, had uh, official jobs, they sort of had their day jobs, uh, maybe illustrating books or, or doing something else, and then. And then in their personal time, they would work in their studios, they would visit one another, and they would have um, events and and initiatives uh, and, and do experimental things. And Samistat provided a place for documentation and theorizing and uh, discussing the kind of work they were doing. And so, you know, creating a... a a visible sort of cohort that could also be expanded beyond um, just the, the the Moscow apartments uh, where um, the core members were were congregating. Um, so the the folio series uh, Mani or Mana, if you use the acronym from the the English translation, Moscow Archive of New Art. This was a folio series from the early 1980s, um, and it's it's a good example, I think, of these different components. Um, so there are reproductions of artworks. There are f- photographs of happenings and um, 
and also uh, typewritten texts with with theorizing and discussion and instructions and things like that. Um, and as you might imagine, something um, kind of multi-form and, and intermedial like that is not so easy to just copy if you're, you don't have mechanical means uh, that are convenient for doing all of it. So um, they, they uh, would do just a few copies and then um, have people come together and, and look at them and discuss them. But the idea was also that this would, you know, this was Samistat as an archive. It was a place to collect the traces of their activity, make it visible and preserve those um, for the longer term because they couldn't do that in, in official ways. Um, and and you asked about the the cover art on the on yes, the book. Yes, the Natalia Abalakova's piece, which is yeah quite striking. And because um, you, you mentioned Malevich just just earlier, Malevich and and, and of course the Black Square, um, and the link in that piece is quite striking to me. So I was hoping you can sh share that with our listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so Natalia Abalakova was with her artistic and personal partner, Anatoly Zhigalov, um, one of the editors of the Mana series. And photographs of her collages appeared there, um, as did her own essay about her work. And I, and I, I think it's so interesting the way she talks about her collages uh, in the essay. Uh, she talks about doing them in the kitchen, taking care of a small child, you know, washing diapers, doing other household work and, and throwing together these collages out of material to hand um, in the, the moments she could spare from, from these other demands. Um, and I don't take her entirely at her word. Um, I think the work is, is a lot more sort of uh, thoughtful and, and put together than that might suggest, but I love the way she describes it because it introduces the sense of a woman's work, a woman's perspective, woman's time into what was a very male-dominated um, artistic group. And um, this collage, Black Hole, uh, on the cover, ha is, is another of the frequent references by um, Abalakova and Shigalov as the group Tote Art, but also conceptualist overall to suprematism. And specifically, of course, Malevich's iconic black square, this um, this painting that is very widely known. The black form at the middle um, is not a square. It's the shape of the USSR as a landmass. Um, and it, it overlays and is surrounded by scraps of text and image that show you know, official socialist realism, news and propaganda mixed with unofficial art and things from emigre publications. So it, it kind of shows this, this complex, and slightly chaotic mix of cultural elements that was a kind of fertile ground for um, conceptualist and other art practices uh, in Samizdat and, and all of unofficial culture. Yeah, no, it, it's a really yeah stunning piece that I was not familiar with before, and uh, it, it makes perfect sense as a... As a a piece of conceptual art and obviously connection to the text text itself. Um, I'm really happy we could reflect on a bit on conceptual art today, uh, this week that uh, marked kind of passing of Ilya Kabakov as a, as a kind of such a figure. Um, 
um, in in that field and a good opportunity to revisit this this um, history. Uh, now your study moves from um, the boys' time to space, and in the final section of your book, you talk about um, spaces of semi-dad solidarity. Um, one of the publications that, well, well, first I would like you to tell us a bit about the, this concept of semester solidarity and spaces of semester solidarity um, and uh, talk about Ukrainian Herald is one of the case studies that you um, kind of uh, highlight in this in this section. Yeah. Um, so, you know, semester solidarity or, or sociality is something that it's, it's a concept I kind of arrived to with the help of, of some theorists, including Benedict Anderson, who talked about the role of print publications in fostering imagined communities and, and you know, national imagination. Um, and I saw these extra Gutenberg um, texts as doing something similar. They were connecting people across space, and they were giving them, um, you know, a way to imagine themselves and their social ties and their their communities, but also the wider society in new ways, um, and and you know, uh, time and space being the the kind of uh, parameters that uh, define our imagination of ourselves and others, and which proved to be you know somewhat malleable. So there was a you know a, a, an official Soviet way of describing. Uh, time and thinking about you know, the space of the Soviet Union or, or a larger kind of international space of solidarity. But uh, these communities were developing ways of expressing uh, their values and their connections um, and their time and space differently. Um, and Ukrainian uh, activists had some some special interests and challenges um, because of where they were and because of um, the difficult history they had um, with and relationship to to the Soviet state um, you know, centered in, in Moscow. And um, the Ukrainian Herald, uh, which first appeared in Kiev, at, edited by Vyacheslav Chornovil in 1970, uh, was like the Moscow Chronicle of Current Events, designed to record and share information about violations of citizens' rights. Um, but certainly they were doing so with a focus on people in the Ukrainian Republic and people who were uh, struggling, uh, among other things, for the right to express themselves in Ukrainian language, uh, and have you know education and cultural activities in Ukrainian, um, and and um, you know do do these activities associated with national um, self-expression, um, which was was formally not uh, an illegitimate thing, but was de facto uh, a trigger for a lot of repressive activity, um, and. Repression happened earlier and was much harsher in the Ukrainian Republic by all accounts, um, you know, maybe more than, than anywhere else. Um, so 
there were these waves of arrests. It was quite difficult um, to to do things, and and people were uh, were arrested and imprisoned um, on a much uh, greater scale and much more frequently. So this um, Ukrainian herald was was kind of remarkable because it did continue for a number of issues. Um, and it focused on the particular conditions and questions um, Ukrainians were facing. So if the Chronicle of Current Events in Moscow aimed to be sort of universal, to cover everything and everyone, however imperfectly, um, the Ukrainian Herald was, was about Ukrainians and um, it featured also essays on Ukrainian culture and the struggle for Ukrainian identity. Um, and it was important that they do that because not everything could be known and communicated to Moscow or through Moscow, which was a kind of main channel for doing it. Um, it was it was very important that Ukrainians in that place uh, be able to keep a record of what they were seeing uh, and experiencing and what they were uh, what they were thinking about it. Um, and, and we're lucky to have uh, that, that record today. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of those examples, and, and they are there throughout your, your study. Um, but Sam is serving to build this or create these communities and platforms um, for solidarity, much more so than the, the perhaps more established view that we have of Sam is that it is being um, vertical, right, challenging up the 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 authorities. This is, uh, I guess, a good example of that horizontal line that you take in in your in your study and how these communities were built through these these publications and made records that were uh, important to them. Uh, on on that note, you you highlight that the legacy of the late Soviet Samis that goes beyond the history of the Soviet Union, and then this activity resonates today. Um, where can we see the influence of STEM is that in, in our contemporary culture? I mean, I guess I would say we see it in, uh, in different ways and that, you know, maybe, maybe that is a, a kind of ambivalent legacy because, you know, certainly uh, when the internet began to be much more widely used, people thought this is wonderful. Anyone can publish or say anything want and it's those horizontal connections you're talking about you know sort of rhizomatic and grassroots and um, and this is this is amazing and I think you know over the decades we've come to see that in fact both um, governments and companies um, ha have much more control and determine the ways that communication happens um, much more than we might have um, expected or hoped initially. So, um, you know, that, that, that makes it not, not a simple, um, kind of, kind of thing. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the hope of sharing, uh, information about rights violations has been, um, sort of counteracted by authoritarian governments that, that crack down on the spread of, of news and communications and, in fact, use channels to discredit and um, persecute uh, people they don't like. And on the other hand, um, 
you know, things like social media have um, proven to be vulnerable to commercial forces uh, in ways that that distort the ability of people to express their interests and create solidarity. Um, so uh, there is still news uh, that gets circulated um, to contradict propaganda, um, and there's the use of VPNs and even um, PDFs um, as ways that people who have access to um, news on independent sites can, can in fact print out copies to give to other folks who might um, fear the, the surveillance and control they would experience if they try to do it electronically. Um, so I think that's, that's something interesting that we're seeing on the Medusa site, for example, um, to, to facilitate kind of old style um, communication that can be a bit more authentic and hopefully keep people safe. Yeah, that's yeah, certainly interesting. And um, transformation of that text and Sammy's that text uh, is certainly something that the readers of your book will, I think, appreciate in a, in a, in a new way. Um, and thank you so much for talking about Soviet Samistat um, today. And I, I was wondering what comes after Samistat? What are you working on at the moment? <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for asking about that. Um, you know, I, I uh, have had some long percolating uh, interest in, in the conceptualist art and other types of visual arts, but um, the big project I've undertaken recently has to do with dissident memoirs. And um, this is, you know, in collaboration with some of my colleagues, uh, following up on some efforts to collect information about published accounts, to think about what wasn't published or what was published in, in um, editions that people just haven't seen or that haven't been translated, and also to... Um, to try to uh, collect and think about the information we have on samis.arc or on uh, dissident archives. So archives associated with people um, who were doing various types of uh, rights activism. And um, it's something that I think gives us a chance to think critically about the Moscow Center um, and to also ask questions about uh, women's voices and the voices of um, activists and national movements. Um, I have some history of, of working on the Jewish movement in the Soviet Union, but of course the Ukrainian national movement is another one of uh, great interest to, um, to people today. Um, and there are other movements that um, deserve to have um, you know, more um, more research done about what traces of the legacy remain uh, and how we can think about them today. So uh, that's that's going to be a multi-year project to collect that information and facilitate some of the um, discussions and analysis around it. Um, and it will be a new uh, a new phase uh, of development for the project website at University of Toronto Libraries. So um, coming hopefully soon, hopefully <laughs> sooner rather than later, uh, database of, of Soviet dissident memoirs. Yeah, that, that's terrific. And those, those uh, 
topics are no less yeah, important today. They're not losing on their relevance um, in our contemporary uh, time and uh, being able to access them. Yeah, being able to access them um, in through these channels is is um, yeah a fantastic opportunity for researchers and activists uh, around the world. So I do hope we'll have you back here uh, to talk about at uh, this stage of your uh, research. Uh, but uh, thank you again for talking about Soviet Samizdat with us today. Thank you.